In this episode of Simplifying Complexity, we're going to return to this idea of how do we take the concepts of complexity science, many of which we've learned through studying other systems, and apply them in the real world. Well, in this episode, we're joined by Melanie Moses, Professor of Computer Science at the University of New Mexico and external faculty at the Santa Fe Institute. Now, Melanie's been on the show twice before, and in her last episode, she talked about how do we program a group of robots to go out and forage, for example, if we went to Mars. Now, in this episode, we're going to stay firmly on Earth. And Melanie's going to talk about a trip she took to Iceland. Now, she was there to study volcanoes, or more specifically, to study how we could use a swarm of drones to study the CO2 output of a volcano. So you're going to hear all about the volcanoes she visited, and you're going to hear about the real practical challenges there is in getting a group of drones to fly in formation and map out the CO2 plume from a volcano. This is Simplifying Complexity, a podcast where we explore the underlying principles of complex systems. Systems that seem to defy our rational view of the world, like economies, ecologies, or even you or me. I'm forensic engineer Sean Brady, and I'll be your host. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. On the show today, we have Melanie Moses. Hello, Sean. Wonderful to be here. We're going to talk about a range of different things today related to complexity, primarily robotics. But before we do, why don't you tell us about your trip in August 2022 to Iceland? I will be very happy to tell you about that trip. It was an amazing adventure where we took a team of faculty and students to Iceland to monitor the gases emitted by volcanoes using our swarm of UAVs or unmanned drones to sample gases emitted by these volcanoes. We went to Iceland because that's where the volcanoes are, right? There are all sorts of interesting geothermal activities in Iceland, including a volcano that erupted in August 2022. Fagrastjak is the name of the volcano that erupted for a few weeks in August. We intended to go to measure the gases that were being emitted by this volcano during the active eruption. We missed the active eruption. It turned out to be a good thing. We managed to do a lot of scientifically valuable measurements about what happens right after a volcano has erupted. And you're particularly interested in the CO2 release from these eruptions. That's right. So we have been collaborating with a group of geoscientists who came to us because they knew that they needed to have more accurate measures of carbon dioxide emissions from these volcanoes in order to help them predict when eruptions might occur. And so predicting volcanic eruptions is obviously very difficult. And certainly it's important, right, because it can save lives of people who live in the shadows of volcanoes. And they're on the order of 500 volcanoes that are capable of active eruptions on Earth. So this is something that affects actually millions of people. From a client science perspective, the issue is we don't really know how much CO2 is coming out of these. Is that the case? That's the case. We know that the amount of CO2 coming from volcanoes is small in comparison to the CO2 that we humans produce with our burning of fossil fuels. But we don't know exactly how much. And it actually is an important component of climate models. Certainly volcanic eruptions are a number of gases and aerosols that can affect the climate. And so this is one, you know, we want to get this data to to help answer this piece of the puzzle. 
what the volcanic contribution is, both from active volcanoes and dormant volcanoes. So you planned to go to look at an active volcano. By the time you got there, it wasn't active anymore. So you looked at it and then you looked at another dormant, you took a second set of measurements at a dormant volcano as well. We did. So I'll tell you about the site of the active volcano is where we went first. So we took our drones. We had four that we took with us, with our team, and we carried them to the edge of the crater and could look over the volcanic lake called a lake. It's not, it doesn't look very lake-like. It's, it's fairly flat. And actually, I suppose there are waves and ripples, but also jagged, sharp rocks at the surface of where the lava happens to sort of freeze in place as it solidifies when it hits the air. And this lake is full of emissions that are ongoing after the eruption. So we could see steam coming up in probably dozens of different locations across this sort of vast field between the peaks of mountains. And so we did one set of measurements there. But then we were also able to go uh, visit another site called Katla, which is thought to be the largest source of CO2 emitted by a non-erupting volcano. So Katla is periodically active. It's quite a large volcano. And some measurements were done with airplanes, much higher altitudes than, of course, we're able to fly with drones. And so it's suspected that this is the largest volcanic source of CO2 that's coming up from the Earth's core and being released even when the volcano is not erupting. And so we wanted to get a sense of that. And you got some interesting measurements from that. We did. So in contrast to the first site, which was sort of stark and, you know, these sharp, dragged rocks, this was just an idyllic location. In Iceland, a lot of the, the land is new in geologic terms, thousands of years old, and it's all just covered with moss. Walking across the landscape is like walking on a Tempur-Pedic mattress, right? It's just this soft, squishy surface. It's delightful. There was a giant mountain or the cone of the volcano, which is capped with a uh, glacier. And then rivers coming out from underneath the glacier where the glacier is being melted from the heat of the volcano beneath it. And that's where we measured CO2 along these rivers that are thought to be carrying CO2 from the glacier. And so we were actually able to fly our drones back and forth in different patterns over the rivers to try to assess how much CO2 there is actually being emitted. It's actually released then from the water, how rapidly it dissipates to get a sense if you're doing a flight really high up, how much are you missing of the CO2 that's actually being released? And you found that there was not as much CO2 being released from this particular dormant volcano as previously thought? Well, we haven't done the calculations yet from the data that we collected. We did expect that we would see very high levels of CO2. And what we saw were sort of moderately high levels of CO2. But what we realized is that the CO2 dissipates so rapidly. So it's rising up off of a surface and then it sinks again. And so as you go just a few meters above the river, the CO2 signal drops quite quickly. So background CO2, right? We're kind of used to this idea. Oh, it's around 400, 420 parts per million. Right? That's the measures of where kind of human fossil fuel burning has brought us. So there we could measure things perhaps as high as 450, even 500 parts per million. But just a few meters off the ground, it dropped off quite rapidly. So going to the scientific problem you're trying to solve, you're obviously trying to measure CO2, but you're trying to measure essentially the 3D contours almost of the CO2 in the atmosphere. Is that correct coming from these volcanoes? That's right. So we have a couple of different questions that we want to ask. All of them are about how much CO2 is there and where is it coming from, with the ultimate goal of sort of integrating all of the different sources of CO2 that might be coming, say, out of that lava lake where we have potentially dozens of fumaroles, right? These sites where the gases are coming up. And so 
we have a set of algorithms that we use to program these drones. Our goal is that some things are done by hand at this point, but our goal is that everything is autonomous. So we can program the drone and say, fly over this field, locate the sources of CO2. When you find a source of CO2, call over your friends and investigate exactly where that CO2 is so that we can get really close to that source so we can have a better measurement of that concentration, which as I said before, dissipates quite quickly. So you want to get near the source to measure it. I'll put it in a side that when you travel as geoscientists, you get a different sense of what's dangerous and what's not. Uh, and we had lots of warnings about what not to do. Don't step there, right? That's a thin crust over a boiling volcanic source. But then you sometimes watch the geoscientists like stick their hands inside of the sulfuric acid. You see this cloud coming out. It's extremely hot and they stick their hand in to get the gas. My colleague, Tobias Fisher in, in Earth and Planetary Science here, would do that. And our job is to take away some of that dangerous work right, by doing this with drones. The interesting thing about the drones, which really brings us back to the whole complexity side of things, is that you're not pre-programming the drones to necessarily fly a predetermined path. You're sending them up there and you're asking them to self-organize, if we can use that language, one another, to have a very efficient way of collecting the data that you want. And we get back to complexity here because this is a little bit like taking the principles of birds flocking and actually working out how they do that and then saying, okay, well, now that we know how they do that, how do you use those principles to program this robotic flock of drones to behave in ways that are helpful, but essentially by working together? So we call this our Vulcan project. So I can sort of explain what that stands for and how that answers this question about really how we implement a complex system in the real world. So Vulcan stands for Volcano Co-Robots with Adaptive Natural Algorithms. So the idea of co-robots is we have a team, actually scientists and robots, we'll focus on the robot cooperation at this point. They need to go out and do this measuring, these samples, gather these samples for us using adaptive natural algorithms. And so by that, we mean they fly autonomously for the most part, and they change their behavior based on the measurements that they collect. So as an example, we have an algorithm of where the drones will form a flock, and each drone is equipped with a sensor that's measuring the CO2 value. They'll sort of determine in real time who's the leader, whichever of the drones has the highest gas measurement, becomes the leader and the others move in that direction. And by essentially keeping the flock in some sort of a formation, at this point, we've made it work with three drones. We're pretty sure we can get to five. Then we really have this distributed sensor. We can make it as sort of big or small as we need to by separating the drones by different amounts. And that means in this very noisy, windy, tumultuous environment of a volcano, we can follow a gradient. And if you've always got the drones turning toward the particular drone that has the highest measurements, then they will tend toward where the highest measurement is in a particular plume. So we're able to use flocking algorithms in order to sort of keep the flock together. We have a self-healing algorithm where if one of the drones fell out of the sky, occasionally that happens, right? We would be able to repair the flock. And we can show in simulations, and we've done this in less dangerous locations than the, than the Iceland volcanoes, this actually works. We can actually follow a gradient much better with a flock of drones than we can with an individual drone. I'm sure it's incredibly complex how you do this, but basically... The algorithm is allowing the group to work out, well, who's got the highest concentration? And then by flying in formation around that drone, you're just getting different data points. Is that what's happening or is it more complex than that? 
It's a little bit more complex than that. So you can imagine a V-shape formation where the drone in the front of the V, at the tip of the V, has the highest reading. But as they move and it's flying, it's going some number of meters per second, they move pretty quick. It's continuing to go in a direction where it's getting higher and higher measurements. But if suddenly the drone on the left gets a higher measurement than the drone in front, then they'll switch directions and they'll start following the drone on the left and it will become the leader. And so they'll reform the V with it at the center. It turns out that these are, in some cases, the very largest plumes. Once you get to the plume, there's maybe a reasonable sort of smooth distribution of how these gases are in the air. But in many cases, it's quite chaotic. And so you need sort of these dispersed measurements in different places, each drone having its own sensor that can be quite far apart, but they can communicate instantly with each other in order to get sort of a local picture of what does the gas look like here? Which direction should I go to find more? The areas of high gas concentration isn't necessarily where the plume is or where the visible evidence of an eruption is, so to speak. So this is a very important point. We all have an image in our head of what a volcanic eruption looks like, right? There's the red fire coming out of the cone. And then you sort of imagine a white steam cloud that maybe heads off in some direction. The CO2 is not necessarily and is often not in the same place as that visible cloud of steam and ash. And in fact, CO2 is very difficult to measure even with satellites or any kind of instrument on the ground. Really, the way to measure it is you have to fly through it. And so previous measurements of this sort were done from airplanes. And so they would fly sensors in airplanes through a plume. There are a couple of problems with that approach, including that you have to fly airplanes quite high. So it doesn't work for these smaller plumes, which might have more CO2 in them, right? We don't know. The many smaller plumes might be releasing a lot more gas than the large one that you see in an eruption. And second, airplanes usually run on fossil fuels. And so they actually contaminate the CO2 as you're flying. We actually got our measurement in the eruption in La Palma We were able to use our drone, find the plume, fly through the plume, and then we actually had a sample bag on the drone, had the drone collect a sample of gas in the plume and then return it back where we could measure things like not just the concentration, but also the isotopic composition, which at that point told the geoscientists the likely source of CO2 that was coming from deep in the earth suggested it was going to be a long, big eruption. So those are the kinds of things you can do. You have a drone you can equip with the scientific equipment and have it react to the environment that it's flying in. So that's the flocking algorithm, the sketch algorithm. Is that part of what you've spoken about or is that a separate thing in the drones? That's a separate algorithm. That algorithm is something that's been developed by our theory team. So we're really trying to come from mathematical theory, what's sort of the optimal way to do this, to something that actually works in the field. And so the sketch algorithm was designed by Abir Islam and Jared Saya, two of our colleagues on this project. They've come up with an algorithm that I like to call two drones are better than one. In this algorithm, we have a single drone or one of the drones job is to stay within the plume. So we say we define a threshold and we say the plume is anything over 500 parts per million. And so drone one, stay within that. Drone two has to stay outside. So drone two's job is to stay near drone one, but not cross the boundary of that threshold. And they both essentially will just fly in the same direction. A couple little cases where you have to make sure they don't cross each other and don't cross the boundary. But it makes a fairly simple adaptive algorithm, right? Each of them is always changing their path to stay in their predetermined scenario inside or outside. And then you can trace the plume boundary as the space between them, as the line you would draw between these two drones. So you can do this with one drone, but it's much harder. It requires much more turning back and forth. That takes longer. You can't go as far. Everything you do with a drone is battery limited. So this is a really nice way to use two drones 
to find the boundary of how big is, you know, the first algorithm is where's the big concentration, and then the second algorithm is how far has it spread out in this particular location. The key thing here, which I love, is it's so easy to think of these drones as individual agents and would be so easy to design them as individual agents with their own program to go up and fly. But what you're actually doing is you're, as we said before, you're taking the interactions that make some complex systems, particularly birds, work and programming them into robots to build a a system of robots or a swarm of robots that is much more intelligent or can behave much more intelligently than a single drone. That's our goal. We hope that we sort of gain some intelligence, right? Just two drones let you sketch the outside of the plume. Three to five drones let you form a flock and fly toward the highest concentration. And then where we think sort of the real intelligence lies is if you've got a group of these agents, like you have a set of, say, five to seven drones, how many of them should you distribute to do the sketch algorithm? What's the sequence of events to find multiple sources? So it's not necessarily just one. And how do you use the scientist's intuition and understanding of the scenario to guide the use of these drones? Ultimately, our goal is to think of this as a scientist in the loop system, where we have multiple drones collaborating and cooperating with each other, a scientist who can perhaps not have much knowledge about how the drones work, but can direct the drones to, I think there's something interesting in that location. So bias your flock to look in that direction. And that's ultimately what we're trying to do here is build a cooperative system where human intelligence can interact with what are really sort of an extension, right, of the human who can't walk these long distances, who really shouldn't have to stick their hand inside the volcano, right, to use then the drones as an extension of human intelligence. One way to think about that is that you're trying to build a system of interacting agents in the drones, but you're essentially saying, yeah, but let's have the human as an interacting agent in there as well to drive even smarter behavior, but as a member of the team rather than necessarily as a sole director. Absolutely. The human is both receiving information from the drones. In real time, we can report back what's the drone measuring where. So we want the human to be able to integrate that with their own prior expectations about where to look. I think this really exemplifies where we're going in AI, right? We're thinking about we have agents or programs, right, that can do particular things very well. So our drones are quite good at flying in particular formations, making certain kinds of patterns. How do we put together the specific skill of one particular drone or a group of drones with human intelligence to really make something that's able to solve a more generic general problem, right? This general problem of how much gas is there coming out? What are the features of this gas that let us predict whether a volcano will erupt? The drones provide some information and the human sort of coordinates that information to make a much more generally intelligent system. And presumably the real challenge there is how do you make that work seamlessly and I suppose constructively as opposed to just doing command and control with a little bit of adaptation going on at the same time? Having the real-time feedback, so we're not quite there in the field. We get a little feedback from the drones as we're flying. I think what makes it particularly challenging as I'm talking about this oh, you know, you program the drone and it goes and it does what you told it to do. Well, that that doesn't happen, right? And there's wind and cables get loose. And (laughs) there are all of these sort of complexity and a different set of complications that happen on the ground. And so how do you keep a system like this together so that you can actually carry out the scientific mission? It's a bit different than, I think, a command and control because the human's not really entirely in control. 
the swarm of robots is in some sense as much in control as the humans. And you want to leverage the abilities of each of these components toward the larger goal. And what's the next piece of this project? Next, I think what we want to do is test out some more of these autonomous algorithms. The way that we've done this, and I'll credit my student, John Erickson, who's both built these drones. We call them dragonflies, by the way, because they have wings that fold in because we have to carry them long distances. So they fold down so you can carry them in backpacks. So John both built the dragonflies and the system that we use to test them. Our best place to test this is a great location we have here in Albuquerque uh, called Balloon Fiesta Park. So Albuquerque is known for having the world's biggest balloon festival. So there's a giant open field, which most of the year is not in use. And so what we do is simulate a plume, for example, on this field. So we tell the drones, these are the measurements that you should get at these locations. But we actually do the flights at that field. And so the next thing on the agenda is is actually being able to put together these algorithms. One of the big questions is, when should you have all of the drones concentrating on one problem, and when should they independently be looking for information? And this independent search is really important. As I said, it's hard to know where the CO2 is coming from. And so sometimes you just want to maximally spatially disperse the drones, right? Everyone go in your own direction, measure what you can, and then you want them to come back together and decide, maybe in collaboration with the scientist, What's the place where we want to form the flock and head in that direction? And so what we'd like to do is make that sort of a seamless system that could be completely autonomous. So the scientist says, go search, right? And they search each going in their own direction, followed by forming a flock and honing in on a particular source. Or we might say, search, but wait for more input from me before you really form this flock. And so that's getting that to be a turnkey system is probably next on the list. It's not the exciting work of going to Iceland, but I think it's the important step of really testing out each component of this and then figuring out how do we put them together in a sensible way. Well, best of luck with it. And Melanie, thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Simplifying Complexity where we look at the key concepts of complexity science with expert minds from across the world. Concepts like emergence, self-organization, adaptation, networks, scaling, tipping points, and much more. This podcast was produced by Brady Haywood and Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. I'm Sean Brady, and I'll see you in our next episode.